Hello, everyone. A warm welcome to Inner Sections, where our aspiration is to have us understand what our fullest potential can be, both in life and in leadership, by creating inner sections. Inner sections as in a fusion of inner and outer, of profit and purpose, of East and West, of science and spirituality, but also intersections as in bringing fresh voices, bringing thought leaders and practitioners and people who are leading story in remarkable lives in this community so that your path and my path can intersect with their path for a moment and we can listen to them and tune into them and gain inspiration from them. And then they go on and we go on and hopefully we've all been inspired in some powerful way. So today, it is a great pleasure for me to have with us Candice Leitner, because she has been a path-breaking force in society. And I can't think in some ways of a better person than Candice for us to have in our midst when we aspire and we hope to find the path forward on how to evolve society, on how to forge meaning, on how to have a meaningful impact in all we take on in life and leadership. Hi, nice and to be here. Warm welcome. Warm welcome. Thank you for joining us. I've uh, had such a rewarding experience having you in our classroom at Columbia that I've often felt so drawn to the idea of also finding a way to connect you with the broader community of people that uh, we've had a chance to be, be uh, engaging in our work. And so, you know, it just gives me a very special joy today knowing that we are making that happen right here. Candice, maybe we can just start by helping our audience understand where this journey began for you. And I'm going back to May 3rd, 1980. Uh, it's a day that we recently had the anniversary of. And, you know, I know it's not easy for you to go back with the flood of memories that you have from that day. But if you would just help our audience just uh, understand what triggered this path that you've taken ever since uh, with what happened that day. I think that would be a, a great gift to them. Sure. So on May 3rd, my daughter, 13-year-old daughter, Carrie, uh, was walking to a Catholic school carnival, which was just down the street from where we lived. She and her friend were walking inside the bicycle lane. She was hit from behind. She was thrown 125 feet. She was left in the road to die. And it was a hit and run. And they didn't catch the man until several days later. At the time that they did, I learned that he was out on bail from another hit and run drunk driving crime, that he had had a number of other prior drunk driving arrests and convictions, and yet he was still driving on a valid California driver's license. And I, I know a lot of people think that I, I should have been very angry at him, and obviously I was, but as I learned more about her death and the reasons behind drunk driving and what was going on in the country at that time, which is hard for people to realize who weren't alive back then, but it was basically um, socially acceptable, I became really more angry with the system than I did with him, to be honest with you. I was just really angry at a system that I believed enabled him to continue to drink and drive. Candice, there's a quote about yours that I read where you, you talk about how um, you promised yourself on the day of your daughter's death that you would fight to make this needless homicide count for something positive in the years ahead. And that that quote is uh, so heroic, so, um, you know, so remarkable in the fusion it shows of a certain level of deep anger and pain you were feeling, and yet the capacity for you to rise above it and to feel like something positive has to come out from it. 
Could you could you talk about that a little bit? Like where where did that spring from, and what exactly was that thought or idea that came to you that day? Yeah, I'm not sure, Hatandra. I would say rise above it in thinking about it, because it's really hard to rise above the kind of pain that I was feeling then. I think in my case, what happened is the anger uh, was so prevalent and so prominent, and the rage, and I was incredibly angry and outraged that we were allowing people to do something that was killing 25,000 people a year at that time. And that comedians made jokes about it and everybody identified with the drunk driver and nobody identified with the victim. That this was just such a prevalent thing that nobody thought twice about. And I think it was that the anger took over and the anger was so great that I felt strongly I had to find a solution. I'm very solution oriented, no matter what the tragedy is in my life or no matter what the conflict is, I always wanna find a solution. And I felt equally the same in this case. And in fact, I just did a blog about death for the COVID sufferers. And I mentioned that in her case, my solution really was initially to donate her organs so that someone could live or be well again. And then I found out that I couldn't because her body was so badly mutilated that I couldn't do that. And I, I, I don't think I've ever felt more helpless in my life and more lost. And I kept thinking, what good can I get out of this child's death? She was my baby. She was an identical twin. She was my oldest. And, and hence, uh, the solution was make sure this doesn't happen to someone else. And that started my journey. <laughs> that started my journey. Yeah. Wow. Along the way, you um, faced many um, unpleasant surprises, isn't it? I noticed at one point you have shared with uh, with me and with the class about how what you found is that there was a pervasive violation of this uh, ethic of not driving drunk uh, across different parts of society. So you weren't really getting the empathy or the support from people. Can you talk about what, what that was like when you kind of like started to go on this quest to help help other parents and help other mothers not lose their children and what you discovered in the world? Well, let me tell you something. One of the things I learned is it's tough when you feel like you've got right on your side, which I did, and other people don't agree. And, and I mean, the, the people that didn't agree were the people in power, basically. I had a legislator throw me out of his office. I had another one tell me if I didn't like the way this country operates, uh, to leave it. And, and basically moved me out the door. I mean, I had a judge say to me one time, if you don't like the laws in this country, little lady, change it. So I did. But I mean, I, I, it wasn't like I was embraced by the politicians and the leaders that I needed to influence in order to pass the legislation or change the policies that needed to be changed that, in fact, would protect society from drunk drivers, drunken drug drivers. So uh, that was probably my biggest challenge was how to win them over. Yeah. Is anger something that kind of can be a crippling force and a blinding force? Or is anger actually something that can be also a force for positive transformation? I mean, what was your relationship with that anger that initially was so weighing heavy on you? So it's hard to go back 40 years because I don't have that same anger now, although I can still get angry and I can still get passionate about injustice, about different kinds of injustice, angry that they exist, angry that no one has done something about it. 
angry that my child died as a result because no one else had done something about it. So in my case, that anger, and, and I've often said this, MAD wasn't helpful with my grief, but it was very helpful with me in dealing with my anger. Because every time we accomplished something or a bill was passed or uh, more people would join me or I was able to help more victims and survivors, the angry would the anger would diminish more and more because i saw it doing so many good things it was just doing so many good things we were changing attitudes people weren't drinking and driving anymore we were saving lives um in the first three years deaths were reduced by about 20 percent i mean we were seeing results that i never even imagined and so when you see the good that that anger in my case did it kind of makes it worthwhile and and then you eventually you know the anger sort of goes away and it's replaced with more thought processes and you know more strategic thinking etc etc yeah did you think that um when you embarked on this that this would be the size and scale and enduring impact that you would uh, you would achieve or even aspire to achieve or, you know what, what were you thinking in those initial steps yeah i wasn't i remember i went back to nitsa uh, National Highway Traffic Safety, uh, whatever, Safety Administration. And I met, I was researching. We didn't have computers and internet and Google and all that stuff in those days. So you did it in a much different way. And I went back and I was meeting with some of the people that worked there, some of the doctors and people that worked on this issue for years. And I remember one of them said, if you make a dent in 10 years, I'll eat my hat, which I did give him three years later to eat. And, and I just didn't, I, I didn't really stop and think, okay, I'm going to do this or I'm going to make this kind of a difference. I wasn't motivated by that so much as I was motivated by raw emotion and by making sure really I had such a need to protect my remaining children. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this was the second time my family had been impacted by a drunk driver. The first time both twins were injured when they were babies, not hospitalized, but injured. And um, and I just had this tremendous need to protect them from having this happen again and to protect other people as well. So I didn't really sit down and think, okay, this is what I want to accomplish. I sat down and I thought, I just want to make sure that people don't think the same way about this as they do now. I wanted to change attitudes. That's really what I wanted to do was to change attitudes and make drunk driving socially unacceptable. Yes, thank you. How did you end up um, feeling the confidence that you can actually take this cause on? Because tell us a little bit about sort of your background in terms of your qualifications, you know, so to say, or there was no LinkedIn that time, but if there was LinkedIn, what would the profile have said? Why were you going to be the right person to take on this mantle for the world? I think that was crazy. I was so incredibly naive, which really worked in my favor. By the way, I wasn't a registered voter. I honestly didn't know the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. I had to go out and register to vote before I, I actually met with my first legislator because I was told to do that by someone. So I did and I became an other and I'm still an other. I was a real estate agent and the mother of three, a single parent. And I didn't have any formal, really major formal education. I simply was this mother who really felt strongly about an issue and uh, my education I, it was it was a day by day education i learned day by day i made mistakes i learned not to repeat them it was really a learning experience and i think today if i had it to do all over again i probably wouldn't to be honest with you but it was um, 
the naivete. In fact, someone once called me, Mrs. Smith goes to Washington. And I will tell you that it truly worked in my favor. I didn't think I knew it all. Um, I was willing to listen. I absorbed knowledge. I listened to both sides, by the way. I remember when I first started and I was learning how to deal with legislation and what lobbying was all about. And thank, thank you to the California Highway Patrol, by the way, because they were the ones who really helped me there. And I wanted to have a meeting of both sides, the, the people that I thought would be opposed to what I wanted to do and the th people I thought would be supportive. And I was told by a number of people, oh, you can't do that. That's not how it works. You don't do that. Well, I did because I didn't know any better. And so I sat down with both sides and said, okay, what will you agree to here? What won't you agree to? What will you do? What, what you, you know, what will you won't do? What will you support? What won't you support? And, and it was an incredible learning experience for me. And, and it helped me in terms of moving forward and designing and developing what strategy I used. Candice, I, I want to invite you to share some more um, with us about the journey. Share some stories. I, you know, I remember you talking about how um, how much of a struggle you had in trying to get into the California governor's kind of um, <laughs> yeah. yeah office, right? Uh, so, can you share a little bit about that that journey? So um, the first strategy, well, we had a strategy deal with a problem at the local, state, and national level. And so at the state level, I decided to form, or I decided to call on Governor Brown, who was the governor at that time, to form a commission, a task force to solve. It was always to solve, never to study, but to solve the problem of drunk driving. And so we started a petition drive, and that was my first press conference, was to announce the founding of MAD and to announce a petition drive. I'm, I always believe you should be for things. I know mothers against drunk driving is against, but I always was for something, for commissions, support, for bills, for this, for that, whatever. So we did this petition, and I tried to get in, uh, tried to make an appointment, and I was refused. And I, I tried on numerous occasions, and I kept getting refused. And I would even go into his office, and I'd carry balloons in, and I'd take cokes in for the staff, and I would just sit there all day and hope that he would come by and maybe notice me and <laughs> decide he was finally going to see me. I had some people working behind the scenes and um, that were also trying to get me in, and I was absolutely not successful. I was not able to get in to see him. And then we decided to call on the president at that time, who was Carter, to start a, to form a presidential commission to solve the drunk driving problem. And I went back to Washington, D.C. and Cindy Lamb, um, God love her, whose daughter was the youngest quadriplegic, I think, in the world at the time because of a drunk driver, joined with me. She was out of Maryland. She started her own group, her own organization after Laura was injured. And Laura did eventually die at the age of seven from her injuries. She and I joined forces and we... I have to tell you my picketing story. So we had picketed in Sacramento. Uh, the kids had, uh, Carrie and Serena's friends had picketed. We decided kind of on the spur of the moment that we would picket the White House in DC. And we'd never set up anything like this. I don't think we had any permits. But we thought it would be a good idea. And at that time, it was Cindy and, and me, basically. And so every TV show or radio show we did, we mentioned that we were going to march on the White House. And that Cindy and I, by the way, were going to march on the White House. And so I forget, it was before we did the big press conference, or either that morning of or the day before. Um, Cindy and I went out there, and Cindy had Laura with her in a stroller, and I had a, a placard with a picture of my daughter talking about drunk driving, and it started with just 
I get really emotional when I talk about this, but it started with just Cindy and I, and I know people aren't going to be impressed when they hear the thousands and thousands of people now marching for whatever, but people came by and honked their horns. They pulled over, they joined us. I think it was maybe a little over a hundred that it ended up being, but it was the fact that it was spur of the moment. People didn't know us. They didn't know who we were, but they had either heard us on the radio or they saw our signs and they decided to join us. It was such an, uh, an impactful moment for me to really realized that we were able to draw in a hundred strangers, a hundred plus strangers um, into this cause because in, in the beginning you tend to think, I don't know if other people have gone through this, but you tend to think it's your cause and, and it's hard to realize it's really everybody's cause. And But anyway, so we did the press conference and I was actually warned by the governor's office that if I said, because everyone knew that I was going to be asked the question, has the governor agreed to see you, which he had. And I was hoping he would agree before I went and did this press conference so I could say yes, but he didn't. And I was warned by one of his staff members that if I said anything negative about him at all, I would never see him. So um, the first question that was asked by was by a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. And it was the very first question. And he said to me, Mrs. Leitner, I understand you've been trying to see the governor. And I said, yes, I have. And he said, have you had any success? And at that time we had something in California, I think they were called titsy flies that were harming the crops and he was going up and down the state, um, you know, trying to deal with the farmers and these flies. And my response was, no, because he's more concerned about titsy flies than he is about dying children. And that was just the thing that I, I to me, I believed. And, and I said it and I thought, well, I guess I can kiss meeting him goodbye. And, but that's what I believe. And so when I got back, I actually had already had a meeting set up in his office with other people. And as it turned out, they called me back and I, I was able to meet with him. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation. I became a big fan of his during that time period. Yeah, yeah. what a powerful story. Yeah, thank you. Candice, one quality that I so admire in you, which is shining through in the story already so far, is a sense of fearlessness with which you have <laughs> approached life. The idea that you don't have to fear, in a sense, your own perceived limitations, the reactions of people, whether you will succeed or fail at the cause, whether people laugh at you or engage with you and support you when you're walking out and taking certain public steps and actions and all that. There just seems to be this uh, you know, complete sort of just like free flowing of spirit and energy from you into the world beyond based on what you think is right to do in any given moment. What is the greatest learning that you have taken away that you could, you could share with everyone from, from your journey? Well, in my talks, and I say this, as I mentioned before, I was incredibly naive. I wasn't a registered voter. I didn't have a, a college education. I struggled through two years with twin babies. And yet I was able to start a movement with no experience, no background, no education whatsoever. And I was able to succeed. And so it is my belief based on my experience that anyone really, you know, because I have people say, yeah, but you must have done this or you must have been. No, I didn't. I wasn't. And I hadn't. So I really firmly believe that anyone can make a difference. Anyone can have an impact. And it doesn't have to be a global impact. It doesn't have to be a national impact. It can be just a little impact at the at the local level. And you know, it can be an impact within your home, within your community, within your workplace. And I know times have changed, but uh, anyone can, if they really believe strongly in what they need to do. 
uh, and they believe that it's the right way to to move forward, even though some people will obviously disagree with you. I, I just believe anyone can do this. Candice, you talked about the depth of conviction, the depth of belief, and we're going to talk about that soon in the uh, work that you're doing now to codify what it takes to succeed at social reform, social activism. But the, the, this this depth of conviction, of belief, um, did it ever get shaken in you? You know, did you ever, um, you know, have a period where you were getting a little bit sort of like maybe dissuaded or just disenchanted or just, uh, you know, just like distracted from this cause? I did, but because of my grief. Um, it wasn't because of things people said to me so much as it was because of the pain that I was going through. I mean, I, I remember, and, and most people didn't realize I was going through that kind of pain because I, I didn't believe in crying in public, at least for me, because I felt that it would take away from my message. So my crying was done in private. But I remember one time I had, I was learning to speak. I, I'd never spoken in public before, by the way. I used to read poetry that I'd written and my knees would knock so bad you could hear it against the podium um, in my real estate company. And so I was trying to, to learn how to speak. Oh, and I'll share with you a wonderful story. Well, first this story and then another wonderful story, by the way, about learning to speak for people who are nervous about that. And I had booked like an engagement with some local neighborhood thing. And I, that morning I was so overwhelmed by pain. And, and the pain is, I can't explain it to you. It's like a ton has been just put on your heart. It just sits on your heart, like 2,000 pounds are sitting on your heart. And I literally could not get up. I could not get up. And I called the gentleman and I told him and I apologized and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to make it today. And he wasn't kind about it. He wasn't nice about it. And I didn't tell him why I probably should have. I should have said, well, I'm feeling 2000 pounds of rock on my chest, but I just said, I can't make it. Anyway, when I was learning to speak, because I'd never done public speaking before, I was invited. Somebody said, oh, go to Toast. I think it's called Toastmasters and they'll help you. So go put together a speech and go. And, and they do this little clock thing, you know, the hourglass, and they turn it upside down, and they write down all the things you do wrong, and afterwards, they'll critique you. And so I thought, okay, that, that I need to do that. So I went, and, and I spoke, and the clock turned upside down, and I kept waiting for people to take notes and write down things, and, and nobody did. And at the end of my presentation, I sat down and I looked around the room and they all sort of talked. And then they said to me, you did a number of things wrong. We're just going to be honest with you. You did a number of things wrong. Don't change a thing. And that, I have to tell you, was like, wow, I guess I can speak. <laughs> I was like, okay, mm. I guess then the, the lesson here is, is speaking from the heart. It doesn't matter if you don't say this right or you're not, or your flow is off or whatever the criteria is. It's the speaking from the heart that matters. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, we have a class I teach online on uh, communicating with impact. And um, one of the uh, you know, core ideas that uh, I've um, you know, discovered through studying some of the great you know, speakers and leaders, and which you evoke so beautifully in what you just said, is this notion of a complete fusion, a complete fusion between you as a speaker and the message you're seeking to communicate and the audience that you're communicating it to. And that fusion has to come when there is a deeply felt connection at your core with what it is that you're offering, what it is that you're communicating. And we see it so vividly from you. Um, let's talk about the here and now. So you've so far showed us the story that got you to conceive MAD, to launch MAD, 
to engage in that sort of journey towards social reform and change, which, by the way, I have to mention to you that while it was focused on the United States of America, over the years, those values of traffic safety and discipline have gradually percolated through other parts of the world, of course, through well-founded initiatives in those parts of the world as well. But so much of that has been your energy and influence, you know, that was starting from there. I can I can certainly feel that, for example, when I travel to and I'm experiencing India, you know, in the last several years, where this has also been a big menace, you know, drunk driving, even now, you know, is not something that is completely purged. And, and yet I see a certain awakening of consciousness that is happening with uh, with the way that we're crossbreeding strengths from across different cultures you know america is borrowing a little bit from different parts of the world and you know india is borrowing a little bit from america etc but but this is one force that you've unleashed that is gradually taking over the whole planet you know which is beautiful so let's talk about sort of what has been happening since because you at some point decided to move on beyond math and you started another organization what is this new organization that you started we Save Lives, and I, I started We Save Lives because I was very involved at that time with two companies, two different companies at two different times who were dealing with the drugged driving issue and had developed products um, that would help uh, take drugged drivers off the road. And I, I actually became very passionate about in working with them about the problem of drugged driving. And ironically, my son, when he was four, was hit by, was run over. Um, by a woman on Valium and critically injured, was in a coma. So I, I had already a personal connection to it, but I didn't realize the problem was as prevalent. And even though at MAD we had drugged driving in our mission statement, you just didn't hear about it as much because they didn't have the right kind of testing. And um, well, they had testing, but it wasn't um, what they have now. So I started mixing and mingling with different traffic safety groups, et cetera. And so there was actually two things going on here. One was getting passionate about the issue of drugged driving. I also became very passionate about distracted driving because I was mentoring a young woman at the time, JC Good, whose family was, um, her parents were killed and she was permanently injured by distracted driving and a driver. And since then, I myself, my back is broken because of a distracted driver. You can understand why I no longer drive. Anyway, so I started thinking, wow, somebody needs to do something about drugged driving and distracted driving um, because there weren't a lot of groups at that time doing anything. I also saw a need for the traffic safety community, the highway safety community to come together and work together because I didn't think they were. And so I started We Save Lives as a partner organization, a coalition, so to speak, of other organizations who share similar goals and similar visions um, so that we could share what each other was doing, promote what each other was doing, etc. And also to deal with drugged and distracted driving. And because of who I am, I obviously, you know, would continue dealing with drunk driving. But to be honest with you, it was drugged and distracted that really got me going on this. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. For those of us who are parents, who knows how many of us may, may not have had a child around today if it wasn't for the safer world that Candace's loss allowed us to ultimately make right the safer world what's next for you candace and um do you think there you know this is something that you could teach people to do and and so i just thought like if i combine those two questions this might be a beautiful moment for us to hear from you this uh, new project that you've taken on to create a masterclass an online masterclass what is that class about 
It's about learning how to be a successful activist and and run a successful campaign, really. It's about the qualities uh, that it takes to be an activist. What is it that you need to do? What is it that you can do? And then how to do it. I'm really good on strategy and how to's. Um, I get very frustrated today, and Tundra and I have talked about this personally, about some of the movements that I don't see moving. And I think they could be so much more successful if they would just implement um, certain measures. And so um, in my frustration, and I hate being an armchair activist, I decided that don't just be frustrated and don't just complain to all your friends, do something about it. So I'm working on this course that I hope everybody can use to some degree, whether they want to start a movement again or just make a difference in their community, that will share with them uh, positive, meaningful ways on how they they can do this. Uh, there's one little thing I want to throw in here when people were talking about the passion, and it's true, I am very passionate. I was uh, a passionate um, back in mad days, and I'm still a pretty passionate person. But there's something else that people need, and that's logic. And I found that to be absolutely invaluable when you're discussing something. And so part of um, part of this course is going to teach people how to logically disarm your opponent and how to do it with not just passion um, and the feeling of righteousness, but also with logic and reason. So so that's what I'm embarking on now. It's, it is beautiful. I'm so excited. I'm honored that we have a chance to collaborate on doing this project, Candice. What are the qualities that you think uh, many people may miss when in a well-intentioned way, they want to sort of like find a way to change the world in a certain way. They have a certain value. They have a certain desire, a hunger. They try to go out and fix the world to kind of be aligned with it, but they struggle. They fail. They retreat. What are, what are one or two pitfalls or shortcomings in perhaps the way they've approached it or the way they've thought about it? Because over the years, in addition to proceeding fiercely on your own purpose, you have been consulted, right, by a lot of people who wanted to start their own movements on their own cause. I can't tell you how many people have contacted me over the years. Almost every week, I hear from someone who uh, has suffered some kind of an injustice personally, or has seen some kind of an injustice, you know, within their family or their schools or whatever, and want to right the wrongs. And um, and that's what prompted, that's another reason, because I, I can't deal with all of them individually. And I thought this course probably could help them very much in, in learning how to deal with that. I think, um, and I'm, this isn't where you were at, Hitandra, I think, with this question, but I want to talk about it for a second. And that's protests. So, and as you saw, we had pickets in the state capitol. We had pickets. This is a real issue for me right now. And pickets at the White House. And I watch protesters and I don't, you know, I may not agree with their reasons for protesting in certain cases, but they have every right to protest. I'm actually getting ready to do a blog about it. And the problem that I see today is that people, when they disagree, they don't know how to disagree in a way that the public can look at and say, hmm, oh, I may not agree with how they believe this country should operate or the environment should operate, but I can see their point after they've done this protest. Instead, they alienate people. Their arrests, their, you know, whatever it is, gun carrying, whatever, ends up alienating people. And it's not making the point that I think they need to make. And I respect their right to make that point whether we agree or disagree. So 
I see a lot of this. And, and like we've talked about earlier at other times, I've seen movements that aren't moving in the direction that I think would be helpful to all of us. I'm, I'm such a firm believer in people making a difference because it makes my life easier and safer. When you have groups that go forward and, and fight rape on college campuses, these are all some of these groups have contacted me and they succeed by making a difference or getting more security or whatever. It helps my child or grandchild who may go to college. So I'm, I'm just a real believer in activists and activism. Um, but I'm also a real believer in doing it in the best way possible that makes the best difference possible. Yeah, I, I, I love that sort of purity of intention with the practicality of doing it just the right way, you know, right? And um, borrowing from all the best practices that are out there about how to influence the world and how to win stakeholder support, but doing it for the right causes, the right reasons, you know, that, right? And that's such a beautiful inner, outer, inner section that you represent, Candice, which is at the heart of this, um, this conversation that we have here in inner sections. It's beautiful. Uh, Candice, any final thoughts and words from you as we bring this uh, conversation to closure? Actually, it yes, stay safe. Please, please practice common sense. Please look at, <laughs> since we're in COVID-19 here, please look at what the doctors say. I want you safe because I love all of you. And um, please drive safe. Please stay safe. Please do whatever you can to keep yourself and your family safe. Thank you so much, Candice. Looking forward to having you back both on the show and of course, and helping you launch that masterclass. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.